Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Happening now, U.S.-led airstrikes inside Yemen trigger a vow of retaliation by Iran-backed militants tonight. President Biden says the strike sent a message to Iran about its allies' attacks on ships in the Red Sea as mass protests erupt in Yemen and fears of a full-scale regional war intensify. Also this hour, a potential blizzard and bitter cold are disrupting the final push to the critical Iowa caucuses. We're tracking the candidates and the severe weather with only three days to go before the first presidential votes of 2024. Welcome to our viewers here in the United States and around the world. I'm Wolf Blitzer, you're in the Situation Room. Let's get straight to our top story tonight. Iran-backed Houthi militants vowing to hit back after a U.S.-led coalition struck the rebel group's positions in Yemen. CNN national security reporter Natasha Bertrand is joining us now. She's got the latest developments. Natasha, first of all, what is President Biden saying as the U.S. braces for retaliation? Well, well, if the president spoke briefly earlier today and he reiterated that the United States stands poised to respond to any additional Houthi action, including missile and drone attacks that they launch in the Red Sea. And he addressed concerns that Iran might get involved in this conflict because the Houthis are supported and backed by Iran. Iran has been providing them with intelligence to attack these vessels in the Red Sea. He was asked if we are in a proxy war with Iran. Here's what he said. I've already delivered the message to Iran. They know I'm not to do anything. We will make sure that we respond to Houthis if they continue this outrageous behavior, along with our allies. No. Iran does not want to war with us. I think they are. Now, the Houthis did, in fact, fire a ballistic missile today after these massive round of strikes by the U.S. and the U.K., and they hit, uh, they targeted a commercial vessel in the Red Sea, but nothing was hit, according to the Pentagon. But the Houthis have vowed to retaliate, and they said that American and British interests are legitimate targets for them, and they said that uh, this, uh, their attack on uh, the Houthi infrastructure on last night, it will be dealt with in a, quote, appropriate manner. It remains to be seen just how much Houthi infrastructure has been destroyed by these U.S. and U.K. strikes. The U.S. would only say at this point that the, that the strikes that they conducted on the Houthis were, quote, significant. Wolf. Yes, yeah, significant indeed. And all this is unfolding, Natasha, as the defense secretary, Lloyd Austin, is still hospitalized, right? 
That's right, Wolf. The Pentagon has taken great pains to emphasize that the secretary was working over the last several days and that he was deeply engaged uh, in every aspect of this military operation, working from the hospital in talks constantly with President Biden and Central Command. But President Biden was asked today whether he still has confidence in Austin and importantly, whether this was a lapse of judgment for Austin not to disclose his hospitalization last week. Here's what he said. Do you have confidence in Secretary Austin? I do. I'm sorry. Yes. Now, it remains to be seen just when Austin is going to be released from the hospital. The Pentagon released an update earlier tonight reiterating that Austin had made a round of calls to members of Congress today uh, describing the justification behind the airstrikes in Yemen last night, but they said they still don't have an update as to when the secretary is going to be released from the hospital. Natasha Bertrand, thank you very much for that report. Let's get some more now on the strikes against these Houthi targets and the growing tensions in the region. Here's CNN's Paula Hancocks. Explosions light up the night sky in Yemen as U.S. and U.K. militaries strike more than 60 targets. The intention, U.S. officials say, to degrade the Houthi rebels' ability to attack commercial shipping in the Red Sea the Iranian-backed group has already promised retaliation. But it's also possible that the Houthis and Iran, uh, through its uh, proxies in the region in Iraq and Syria and through Hezbollah, uh, could also launch asymmetric attacks, indirect attacks across the region. Iran's proxies, the so-called axis of resistance, have been launching attacks on Israel and U.S. troops in the region on a near-daily basis from bases in Lebanon, Iraq and Syria. The possibility now of an increase in attacks by these Iranian-funded, trained and equipped groups cannot be discounted. Probably through proxies, I, because the Iranians don't want to, at least not yet, they don't seem to want to directly confront uh, the U.S. and its allies. Uh, the other aspect of this is that uh, the proxies that Iran has aren't necessarily as directly controlled as we sometimes think they are by the Iranians. All ideologically linked, supporting Gaza and attacking Israel and the United States, but with varying degrees of autonomy. Iran has benefited from decentralizing management over the groups. Uh, this comes with risks, though, because there is a much more agency um, for these groups uh, and, and then thereby much more risk for Iran as, as well. A senior State Department official says that the U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, brought a specific message to his Middle East tour recently, namely that if the U.S. were to carry out actions against the Houthis, it should be seen as defensive and not escalatory. It's a message that will not be accepted by Iran's proxies in the region. Paula Hancocks, CNN, Abu Dhabi. And thanks to CNN's Paula Hancocks for that report. Right now, I want to bring in a key Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee, Congressman Josh Gottheimer of New Jersey. Congressman, thanks so much for joining us. Like all the other members of the Intelligence Committee, you've been briefed. First of all, what can you tell us about these strikes and how far does all this go to degrade the Houthis' ability to carry out future attacks? Well, what's very clear is these are, as you heard, Iranian-backed proxies. Right, so the Houthis have been firing uh, missiles and drone attacks on, on, on ships in the region now for weeks. Um, many global ships have been diverted. You're talking about 15% of all global commerce in the region. The Houthis, between drones and their missiles, uh, have 
shot in the direction of U.S. ships, military ships, and of course, uh, of, and have gone after uh, U.S.-owned ships. So the bottom line is, in this case, I think the president was completely right to respond. You can't let this go on unanswered. Uh, and, you know, and, and as the president also said today, Wolf, which I think is very important, is Iran does not want war with the United States. But listen, these are their proxies. They're backing the Houthis. They're behind this. And you can't just let them go unanswered. How do you expect the Houthis to retaliate, Congressman? Well, we'll see. We've seen what they've been doing now for weeks, right? They've been firing missiles uh, at uh, ships in the region, including our ally, those of our allies. They've been firing drone attacks uh, uh, at those in the region. Uh, they've uh, hijacked ships. So the bottom line is I think they're going to continue, my guess is, to do more of the same. But as the president also said today, they should expect a response. Right? This, this just can't go unanswered. Uh, I called along with Brian Mass, Congressman Brian Mass, for... Uh, the Houthis to be designated as a foreign terrorist organization. They clearly, uh, this is clearly terrorist activity. They're doing it on behalf of the Iranians, uh, the Iranian government. And so this is a very aggressive move from, uh, from Iran's proxies, just like Hezbollah, just like Hamas. So, you know, this is a very, it's a very tense region right now. But the bottom line, the best way to keep things in check is you can't let them go unanswered. So do you, does the U.S. need to brace, Congressman, for these other Iranian-backed proxies, you mentioned Hezbollah, you mentioned uh, various uh, the Iran-backed militias in Iraq and Syria, Hamas in Gaza, for example. Uh, should the U.S. brace for them to respond as well? Well, I think everybody right now is, uh, is, is aware that you know, every day you're, you're, you're facing risks, both from Hezbollah in the north. It's why the president sent initially uh, two carriers to the region uh, to keep the, to make a clear, send a clear signal to uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon to not act, to stay put. We see obviously what Hamas did with uh, on October 7th, nearly 100 days ago, and their uh, uh, heinous attack on Israel, uh, including, you know, killing dozens of Americans. Uh, six are still hostage. Um, so we've seen that and we've seen their action. And that also is Iranian backed activity. Uh, and we've seen it through uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad. And of course, now the Houthis, we've seen activity out of Iraq, which has continued firing at Americans. Um, so, you know, the whole region, of course, right now is tenuous. Um, but the bottom line is it's why we have to, when we need to, respond. And I think the president took exactly the right action. To what extent, uh, Congressman, is Iran directing all these various attacks and does this strike uh, bring the U.S. closer to a direct confrontation with Iran? Well, I can't go into all the specifics on that, but I'll, but I'll say you, we know historically and what's been clearly public is that Iran uh, funds a lot of this activity, right? The missiles that the Houthis have are clearly from Iran, from the government in Iran. Right. And that's uh, right. I don't, I don't think they got them themselves. And and Iran's been pretty clear of who that they've funded um, many of their proxies in the region, including Hamas, including Hezbollah. Um, so, um, you know, what do you have to look at here is Iran itself. And this has been their pattern over the years. Iran uses their proxies to attack others uh, and to threaten others, including Israel and our other allies in, in, in the region. Uh, and of course, us. Now, they've gone directly as well. The Iranian military, the IRGC, has attacked uh, our allies has gone after our bases, but usually the activity is through the proxies. And, and that's what we're seeing here, in my opinion, with the Houthis. Some of your fellow Democrats in the House, Congressman, are criticizing President Biden for not getting congressional approval before these strikes uh, back in 2020 after then-President Trump's 
deadly strike on Iranian commander Qasem Soleimani. Uh, uh, Biden wrote this at that time. Donald Trump does not have the authority to take us into war with Iran without congressional approval. So, Congressman, should President Biden have sought formal congressional approval under the War Powers Act before carrying out this latest attack? Well, I agreed uh, back in the last administration with the attack on Soleimani, uh, given uh, his threats in the region. Uh, and I believe that the president acted appropriately uh, here, and as they pointed out, in a defensive posture. That's the, the commander-in-chief's responsibility to respond when there's an attack uh, on our interests. And this, this is clearly an attack on our interests. And the president acted responsibly and, uh, and, of course, uh, proportionally. And that's what his... As commander-in-chief, that's what his responsibility is. Now, if this goes on longer and it goes deeper in the region, I believe the president should come to the Congress. But when in terms of responding to an attack on our interests, so you're talking, again, thousands of ships have been affected, 15% of global commerce affects the supply chain, affects the global economy, and, of course, there's been, a, there's been missiles fired and drone attacks fired in the direction of American ships and, and uh, military, you have to respond, and I think the president acted accordingly. Congressman Josh Gottheimer, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Wolf. Have a good weekend. You too. And just ahead, crippling cold uh, impacting the campaign trail at a critical time in the race for GOP nomination. A live report from Iowa on how the candidates are using new tactics to get their message out with just three days to go. Stay with us. You're in the situation. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Tonight, the Republican presidential candidates are facing a new challenge in the final 72 hours before the very high-stakes Iowa caucuses. The state is at risk right now for a dangerous blizzard, followed by record-breaking sub-zero temperatures. And that's disrupting campaign plans and threatening to reduce voter turnout. CNN's Jessica Dean is on the scene for us. She's joining us from Des Moines right now. Jessica, give us an update, first of all, on the weather and its potential impact on the GOP race. 
Well, if we're in the middle of a blizzard here in Des Moines and across much of the state of Iowa, people are being told not to drive, that it's too dangerous. And we really don't see many people out on the streets, not many cars. We see a few buses going around the city of Des Moines, but that's about it. And as you can imagine, that has certainly impacted the campaigns, which have scrambled to make the most out of this very snowy, cold day just three days before the caucuses. With three days until the Iowa caucuses, the snow fell and fell and fell, and campaigns scrambled. You have to go and trudge through snow to be able to earn the vote. You trudge through snow. The snowfall is set to be followed by dangerously frigid temperatures heading into caucus day on Monday. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley canceled all of her in-person events on Friday, instead opting for teletown halls. I am so sorry that we couldn't be in Fort Dodge, um, but I didn't want to miss the opportunity to be able to communicate for all of you that were planning on coming out um, to see us on this snowy day in Iowa. Most of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's events were also called off, though he did add a last minute stop to meet with volunteers in Urbandale, Iowa. We uh, can handle the snow even though we're a Florida based campaign. The forecast calls for sub-zero temperatures in the coming days, with Monday expected to be the coldest caucus day ever in the Hawkeye State. I've been doing radio interviews. I've been on the phones with voters. We're trying to make sure we do everything that we can. And yes, the weather is a concern. I'm concerned because I want people to be safe on caucus day. It's going to be negative 28 wind chill. Um, and so what we hope is that they will wear layers, that they will bring their photo ID, and that they will come out and caucus. The candidates are already beginning to try and account for the likely record-breaking cold on Monday. we got to make sure that everybody gets out, doesn't say, well, you know, it's a little cool out. Former president and frontrunner Donald Trump's campaign is already adjusting expectations. His advisors have privately acknowledged to CNN his lead will likely be impacted by the weather on Monday, with much of his strategy built on turning out as many caucus-goers as possible. DeSantis and the Super PAC aligned with his campaign have long touted their organization and ground game in Iowa, which will be put to the test on Monday. The people that kind of come in and just, you know, spend tens of millions of dollars and, and that's kind of it, they tend to underperform. And on our side is probably the best that anyone's been able to put together. With a flurry of campaign events scheduled for the weekend, the weather could cause further disruptions on the trail, with the entire GOP field planning to barnstorm the state over the next few days. In the meantime, a pro-Haley super PAC has released a new ad to reach voters at home, mocking DeSantis for his past support for Trump. Make America great again. And what we've continued to see is this dynamic between DeSantis and Haley as they both fight to be the alternative to the front runner, former President Donald Trump. And to that end, we'll forgetting some new reporting from a source familiar with his plans that Governor DeSantis plans to fly directly to South Carolina from Iowa after the caucuses. He'll stop there before continuing on to New Hampshire. That's worth noting because New Hampshire is technically next. South Carolina is Nikki Haley's home state, of course, so there's a little bit of trolling going on there. And the race in New Hampshire, according to polls right now, appears to really be between Trump and Haley. So DeSantis really seeing his moment to go to South Carolina before then going on to New Hampshire, Wolf. Yeah, he's got to worry about New Hampshire first, of course. So, uh, Jessica, what will this race look like tomorrow? 
So that's what we're all looking to see. The snow is supposed to stop in the coming hours, but then we're going to see these sub-zero temperatures where they're saying if you're outside, you could get frostbite just within 10 minutes for any exposed skin. So it's still going to be extremely cold. But as I mentioned in that story, all of the GOP field, all of the candidates, including the former president, are expected here in Iowa tomorrow. They're supposed to be going all across the state. And as of now, all of those events are currently on. So we will look to see if that stays the case. Again, this weather coming at just such a unique and important time for these campaigns with just such little dwindling time between now and when the caucus goers will go to those caucus sites on Monday and we'll start to have the first votes cast uh, in this primary. Wolf. All right, try to stay, uh, try to stay uh, warm, if stay warm if you can. Jessica Dean in Iowa <laughs> for you. us. Appreciate it very much. Coming up. New reporting on fears within the Biden camp that some key voters aren't taking Donald Trump's potential return to the White House all that seriously. President Biden just returned here to Washington from a trip to a key battleground state. We're talking about Pennsylvania. This as we're getting new insight right now into a big concern for his reelection campaign. CNN senior White House correspondent MJ Lee is joining us. She's got some new reporting for us. What are you learning, MJ? Well, Wolf, uh, the Biden campaign does overwhelmingly believe right now that the uh, likely Republican presidential nominee is going uh, to be Donald Trump. And they are preparing for a general election with that expectation in mind. Uh, but what we are learning is that uh, the reality that the Biden campaign is grappling with right now is the fact that the majority of undecided voters at this moment in time do not seem to believe that Donald Trump is going to be uh, the Republican nominee. Uh, in fact, according to internal campaign data that some officials describe to us, some three uh, in four people uh, in this undecided group that the campaign is targeting uh, doesn't yet believe that Trump is going to be the Republican nominee. Uh, and campaign officials say that the biggest reason really just simply seems to be that at this moment in time, a lot of voters are simply tuned out uh, of the election. They're not paying close attention to sort of the ins and outs uh, of the Republican primary. As one senior campaign official put it, uh, they said you can't conceive of how tuned out uh, these folks are. And that idea uh, is is uh, supported by some recent public polling, uh, including this poll from late last year that showed uh, when you ask the question, how much attention are you paying to the election? 47% uh, of people said that they are paying little or no attention, and just 20% said that they are paying a lot of attention. Uh, and look, uh, Wolf, the Biden campaign does believe that at some point in time there is going to come a shift in the minds of a lot of voters uh, where they sort of come to this realization that one senior campaign official described as sort of the oh shoot it is an election between that guy and that guy moment uh, but it's just impossible to know right now when that shift uh, will happen now uh, in the meantime as we have seen over the last few weeks the biden campaign is sort of trying to ramp up uh, these uh, attacks and these contrast that they're trying to make between President Biden and his predecessor, uh, Donald Trump, uh, on a number of issues, whether it is uh, talking about the events of January 6th uh, from three years ago, whether it is talking about issues like the economy or abortion, they are drawing that contrast and really focusing the most on Donald Trump. Uh, in fact, you saw earlier this week when there was a Donald Trump uh, town hall going on and a town hall between two of the other Republican candidates, the Biden campaign really only 
certainly focused in real time uh, on the things that Donald Trump was saying. So uh, the task that the Biden campaign describes to us at hand for them right now is to remind voters of what the Donald Trump White House looked like uh, during the first four years of that first term and also just try to paint a picture of what a second Donald Trump presidency would look like. Wolf. What do we expect? Uh, Do we expect the President Biden, MJ, to be out there on the campaign trail more often in these coming days and weeks? Yeah, you know, that's certainly expected given uh, where we are in the calendar. I don't think that is exactly where we are uh, right now. I think they are waiting to see the Republican primary process play out. Uh, But yeah, I think at some point uh, soon in the coming months, we are going to see sort of a blurring of the lines even more than now uh, between official uh, events that are put on by the White House and then campaign events. And the truth of the matter is when it comes to the issues, I think that distinction is increasingly going away. You know, we saw the president and he's returning right now to the White House uh, from an event in Pennsylvania that was largely focused on the economy, the issue of the economy. Uh, You can't really say that that is not an important campaign issue. And in fact, it is probably the number one campaign issue. Uh, So, yes, we do expect sort of the travel and the schedule uh, of the Biden campaign to ramp up in the coming months and particularly as it becomes clearer uh, who the Republican nominee is going to be on the other side. Yeah, things are heating up big time. All right, MJ the White House for us. Thank you very much. Just ahead, an alleged affair between Donald Trump's lead prosecutor in Georgia and the district attorney is brought up in court now for the first time. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, New friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. There are new developments uh, tonight. The judge in the Trump election subversion case in Georgia now plans to hold a hearing on allegations of an improper relationship between the Fulton County District Attorney and the lead prosecutor. Our chief legal affairs correspondent, Paula Reed, is working the story for us. She's here with me in the situation room. Paula, these allegations, I take it, first came uh, this week from one of Trump's co-defendants without any direct evidence. That's right. Trump's co-defendant, Mike Roman, has accused the district attorney, Fonnie Willis, who's overseeing the sprawling RICO case, and the lead prosecutor, Nathan Wade, of having a, a romantic relationship. Now, Wade's appointment raised a lot of questions here, because while he has briefly uh, worked prosecuting cases, they were pretty minor cases. And more recently, he has worked in personal injury. I mean, I even had some sources suggest to me during the, the course of this investigation, they were a little surprised by his lack of experience in the criminal process given this enormous role. Now, Roman's lawyers, as you noted, they have not provided any evidence, but they point to the fact that Willis has one of the largest staffs of any judicial circuit in Georgia, and yet she appointed Wade, even though he doesn't necessarily have the resume you would think of, and that he has made a substantial amount of money working on this case over the past two years. Now, I want to note um, that Wade has not responded, and Willis has, her office has said that she will respond through the appropriate court filings. But today, 
during a routine hearing, one of Trump's lawyers brought this up, and the judge who's overseeing this case said, look, I'm going to schedule a hearing on this. He needs some more filings to come in. But, Wolf, going forward, I mean, this is, this is going to be an issue. Could these allegations have ramifications, consequences beyond what's going on in Fulton County? Certainly, because, of course, this is such a consequential right, case. They're charging the former president. We're in the middle of an election cycle. It's not surprising today to see Republicans seize on this, and they are trying to get documents uh, that would support this. WADA is in the middle uh, of a divorce, so they are seeking some of the documents that they believe could substantiate some of these claims. So this is absolutely going to turn into a political issue. Now, it's not clear that this would make the charges themselves go away, um, but there will likely be calls for either one or both of them to step aside, potentially someone else to take over the case. I mean, it's this, this for the Trump team, let me tell you, in talking to sources in and around Trump world, I mean, this is really a gift because this gives them the opportunity to really try to undermine the credibility of this case that has always been such a concern, Wolf, because it's a state-level case. So even if Trump is, is re-elected uh, to the White House, he nor any other uh, president could pardon anyone who's convicted in that probe. Interesting indeed. And looking ahead to next week, there's the E. Jean Carroll defamation case yeah. that will be coming up. And we understand Trump says he will attend that case in person as well. Today, the lawyers for E. Jean Carroll raised a big concern. Yeah, they're really concerned about what Trump could do if he follows through uh, on what he said he's going to do, which is show up. Now, I covered uh, the first E. Jean Carroll defamation trial last year. Trump did not participate in that at all. But look what happened yesterday in New York. I was covering the civil trial where the judge gave Trump uh, the opportunity to address the court. There were rules. There were restrictions. Trump blew through all of them. He attacked the judge. He attacked the prosecutor. He went on a, a bit of, of a rant, something you really usually don't see in court. So it's understandable that E. Jean Carroll's lawyers, even though this is federal court, uh, are worried because this proceeding, they are going to be before a jury that will be considering potential damages for defamatory statements that Trump made in 2019. So we're already right talking about defamation. Um, attacking Eugene Carroll publicly. So they are probably right to be concerned about what Trump might try to say or do in this courtroom. Now, the judge has already tried to put limits on what Trump can say if he does participate. Well, that's pretty standard, Wolf. In most legal proceedings, they would want you to stick to the relevant and material facts. But that that was the case in New York. And again, Trump just completely blew through that. So it'll be interesting to see if he actually shows up, because as I said, this is federal court. Right? This is not a uh, state court, which is what we were, were in yesterday. There are no cameras. There's no audio. There are no reporters camped out in the hallway. It's much harder to seize the limelight in a proceeding like this and try to get your message out, which he arguably did very effectively yesterday. But then when he tried the same thing on Tuesday here in D.C. in federal court, it didn't work. So I'm really curious to see how these conversations go over the next few days with his lawyers. If he realizes, wait, this is federal court, this is why I didn't participate the first time, it changes his mind. But if he does show up, we'll see. The, the judge is giving Trump's team a chance to weigh in on this request as well. Yeah, he sees all these legal hearings that he's going through. There's a lot of them as yeah. potential political opportunities for him in the campaign. Absolutely. It's an opportunity to get his message out. First, you have the assembled media, if it is a significant uh, proceeding, as it was yesterday. And then you have the opportunity to try to frame this as a political persecution, which is what he's doing in the civil cases and tries to do with all these other cases, too. It's just easier to do at the state level than it is for these federal proceedings. Paula Reed, uh, thanks as usual. You're going to be a busy lady in the next few days.
You always are. Thanks very much for joining us. Uh, Coming up, for the first time in Joe Biden's presidency, the U.S. Justice Department is seeking the death penalty. We'll have more on the horrific case that prompted this truly historic move. Let's, Let's turn back to the battle for Iowa as Republican candidates urge caucus goers to brave the bitter cold and turn out for Monday's high stakes contest. Our political commentators, Maria Cardona and Alice Stewart, are joining us right now. Maria, Iowa is expected to be brutally cold, as you all know, Monday night. Should the Trump campaign be at all concerned that with his dominant lead right now, Trump voters may not necessarily feel it's necessary to brave the cold for him? I do think that they should absolutely be concerned in this kind of historic, frankly, life-threatening weather you know, a lot of times, most of the times, these candidates always wonder whether their voters are going to come out. But on Monday, everyone is asking, will voters come out in this weather? And because of all of the warnings, people think, wow, Donald Trump is 30 points ahead. Well, maybe he doesn't need me. And if enough of them do that, then I think there's a danger there. But at the same time, Wolf, I think that there's danger for all of the other voters as well. If you're somebody like Nikki Haley, where you actually need to change some minds and you want voters to go who perhaps aren't sold on one candidate or another, or certainly are are shopping around for Donald Trump, you got to think in life-threatening weather, the only voters who are going to come out are the diehard voters that support a candidate. And for that, I would bet Donald Trump has more of those. Alice, uh, Trump has consistently dominated, as we all know, the polling in Iowa, But his team now seems to be trying to lower expectations. That, according to Politico, uh, which which and I'm reading now from Politico, a win is a win. A top Trump advisor, Chris uh, LaCivita, told reporters after the town hall. But anything over 12 points, I think, is a great night. What do you think? What do you think? What do you think is behind that comment? Well, I think they're looking at the poll numbers that things are tightening up, you know, for 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 months. He's been up, you know, 50, 40, 30 percent uh, in Iowa. And now things are tightening up. And the, the key with Iowa is you always want to um, uh, under promise and over deliver. Right. You want to overplay your expectations. And when they see that they are not going to just completely uh, blow away the competition, uh, they need to temper the messaging, which is exactly what they're doing. Uh, I think, look, I there's no mistaking that I would imagine that Donald Trump will win in Iowa, but by how much is the question. And the key here is, is how close can uh, Haley or DeSantis get and close that gap to give them the momentum they need to get into New Hampshire and really make a push for gathering more delegates as, as we get down the, the GOP, the primary calendar. Yeah, we will find out Monday. All right, guys, thank you very much, Maria Cardona and Alice Stewart. Other news we're following right now, federal prosecutors will seek the death penalty for the gunman responsible for killing 10 black people at the top supermarket in Buffalo, New York, in what will be uh, the Biden administration's first capital punishment case. CNN's Brian Todd is joining us right now. Brian, what can you tell us? Wolf, even though the president's own attorney general had placed a moratorium on the federal death penalty, federal prosecutors felt this case stood out. They cited the horrific nature of the crime and the intent of the shooter. 
present in the courtroom. He gunned down 10 black people at the top supermarket in Buffalo and wounded three others. Tonight, the man responsible for the racially motivated shooting is facing the prospect of being put to death by the government following the Biden administration's decision to pursue the death penalty in a federal case for the first time. Today, victims' relatives responded with mixed emotions. I would have preferred he stay right, right here, locked up in county jail for the rest of his life, surrounded by people who want to kill him every day. We would like to see justice served to the point where that he would at least have some thought, some, some time to think and process what he did. The gunman is already serving a life sentence in his New York State case after pleading guilty last year to state terrorism and murder charges. At the federal level, he faces several hate crimes and firearms charges. The decision to pursue the federal death penalty is a reversal for President Biden, who, as a candidate, pledged to try to eliminate the death penalty at the federal level. There's still a moratorium on federal executions put in place by Biden's Attorney General Merrick Garland. Why is the Biden Justice Department doing this now? Even though he ran on uh, abolishing the death penalty, um, this is uh, mass shooting. Uh, 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 someone who killed 10 people, black people, in a, a, a grocery store in Buffalo. And um, he has tried to really show that he is significantly combating uh, violence like this and white supremacist violence and racist violence. And in asking for the death penalty, federal prosecutors in court papers repeatedly stressed the intentional nature of the gunman's rampage. CNN legal analyst Joey Jackson says the federal case will play out like many capital murder trials. A jury will decide his guilt or innocence. Then, if he's convicted in the penalty phase, if just one juror votes against the death penalty, his life will be spared. What's the real likelihood that the shooter will actually be executed by the federal government? I think that there's a substantial likelihood I think that uh, they have the evidence, they have the goods, and if ever there was a case that warranted the death penalty, this would be it. But the federal case will likely keep open some horrible wounds. We never go in no neighborhoods and take people out. Don't do it. The state sentencing hearing last year was so highly charged that a person rushed the shooter in the courtroom and had to be subdued by officers. One illustration of the torture still being endured by the victim's relatives came from Simone Crawley, the granddaughter of victim Ruth Whitfield. Simone Crawley told CNN, quote, there's never really an outcome that will really measure up to the impact that has happened. Wolf, they are still devastated. They certainly are. Uh, Brian Todd reporting. Brian, thank you very much. Coming up, polls are about to open in one of the most consequential elections of the year. A live report from where voters are picking a new president. That's next. The future of Taiwan's democracy is up in the air right now as voters on the island prepare to choose a new president. Threats from China's increasingly assertive uh, communist government playing a major role in Saturday's election. Our senior international correspondent, Will Ripley, has the latest from Taipei. Tonight, Taiwan at a crossroads. The upcoming presidential election, some call a choice between peace and war. Taiwanese voters face a monumental decision. Continue prioritizing ties with Washington or recalibrate the U.S. relationship and mend fences with Beijing. If the Democratic Progressive Party doesn't change their direction, I think that war could happen in our generation. In the campaign's final days and hours, three parties drawing battle lines. 
Watching closely, China's communist leaders and U.S. lawmakers. Taiwan's ruling party, the Democratic Progressive Party, or DPP, the presidential frontrunner. We are determined to safeguard peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. Presidential candidate and current vice president Lai Qingde running alongside Taiwan's former U.S. envoy, a ticket openly despised by Beijing. Lai says deterrence is the only way to defend Taiwan from a Chinese takeover, a message that seems to resonate with many in this crowd. And a message that infuriates China. Lai promises to continue the policies of Taiwan's two-term president Tsai Ing-wen. Beijing broke off talks with Taipei when Tsai won in 2016. Her landslide re-election in 2020, fueled in part by fears of Taiwan becoming the next Hong Kong. During Tsai's eight-year presidency, U.S.-Taiwan ties and arms sales hitting new highs. Cross-strait ties tanking, tensions boiling over. Taiwan's two main opposition parties call it a dangerous path claiming it pulls Taiwan, China, and the U.S. closer and closer to a catastrophic cross-strait conflict. Plans for a joint ticket collapsed on live TV, giving the ruling party a slight edge. Kuomintang, or KMT candidate, Hoyo Yi, seen as friendlier to China, calling for more cross-strait diplomacy and trade. Do not use hatred to create confrontation and division. Taiwan People's Party, or TPP candidate, Ko Wenger, promising a pragmatic and professional China policy. Our party would like to reach out to China and have them um, begin a dialogue with us. Intelligence agencies in Taipei accuse Beijing of election interference, slapping sanctions on Taiwanese exports, sending spy balloons, showing off a new aircraft carrier, and this week, launching a satellite over Taiwan triggering a rare emergency alert. During this foreign ministry press conference, Taiwan later apologized for mistranslating the Chinese word for satellite to missile. They're trying to uh, destroy Taiwan's democracy uh, whenever possible. Disinformation, deep fake videos, doctored audio, all coming from China, Taiwan intelligence says. Beijing calls the ruling party candidate dangerous, deepening divisions ahead of a crucial vote to define this democracy's future. And tonight you're looking live at one of nearly 2,000 polling stations across Taipei. The polls are opening up in just seconds, Wolf. Less than a minute from now, people across Taiwan who have to return to their hometowns and vote in person to participate in this election well, you can see the turnout of this one. A lot of people, Wolf, even flying from overseas, understanding just what's at stake this time, this vote. Yeah, the stakes clearly are enormous. So thanks very much, Will Ripley, reporting from Taipei. And to our viewers, thanks very much for watching. I'm Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I'll be back Monday morning for CNN's special live coverage of the Iowa caucuses. Our coverage begins at 9 a.m. Eastern. I'll see you then. Till then, once again, thanks very much for watching. Aaron Burnett out front starts right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.